Okay, so you know I love good wordplay. And Third Love is crushing their wordplay here. When you have a bra that pinches or slips or just isn't comfortable at all or is comfortable but isn't your style, you've got problems. <laughs> How excited was Third Love when they thought of problems? Well done, Third Love. I see you. When you wear Third Love bras, you've got no problems. They fix the problem of size exclusivity with their famous half-cup sizes that revolutionized the industry by giving more options to find a bra that fits. And they fixed the problem of guessing what bra will fit you with their virtual fitting room and other helpful guides. A bra size chart, a bra 101 education section that's basically an FAQ for all your burning questions, and a ton of great reviews from real people. My sister just texted me, 99 problems, but pinching <laughs> isn't one. It's time to get your problem solved. Visit thirdlove.com and get $15 off your order with code PODCAST15. I chased desire, I made sure I got what's mine. Welcome back to We Can Do Hard Things. We are over the moon and a bit skited, scared and excited today because after dozens of episodes, today we have our first guest. We have decided we are only having guests who are an act of service for you, okay? And who are completely in line with our intentions that we can do hard things. And this is one of our greatest intentions here. Okay, after a decade of listening to people tell me the truth about their lives, mostly women, but especially lately, all genders. Here's what I've noticed. Two interesting things. Number one, we all have a shitload of problems, <laughs> okay? <laughs> and number two, we all have pretty much the same 20 problems, okay? But we all think our problems are our fault, are personal to us, are due to some kind of shortcoming or fault or ignorance of ours. But if everyone is having the same struggles, how can our struggles be personal, right? It was like I was sitting in a meeting recently discussing girls and eating disorders um, because of my history with that and present with that. Um, and someone looked around the circle at all the girls, one of the survivors, and she said, I just don't understand. How could this happen? What's wrong with us? And I said some version of this, but less um, eloquently. Nothing is wrong with you. You were just born into a world that told you from the moment you were born that your worth was in your beauty and that your beauty depended on your smallness. You were told in a million different ways that as a girl, you were not allowed to hunger or feast or grow and still be pleasing. You were just paying attention. You were just a good student. You are not broken. You are just responding quite logically to a broken world. And now you have this disease and it's not your fault, but it is your responsibility to heal because you deserve to have joy and freedom in this one wild and precious life you've been given. In this particular brutal, fucked up world, you've got to live it in. And so our intention here is to convince you that there is nothing wrong with you, to counteract centuries of gaslighting, to prove once and for all that it's not you, it's them, that you're not crazy, you're a goddamn cheetah. And remove the shame because most of our problems are not our fault, but they are our responsibility. So we got to work together to free ourselves. Okay. Enter our sex episode two months ago called Silent Sex Queen. <laughs> okay. Your reaction was sort of ludicrous. The voicemails, the emails, the questions just flew in. And that was extremely exciting, except the only problem with that was that in spite of the power vested in me by me as silent sex queen, <laughs> I don't know shit about sex, okay? So we needed a sex expert, a sexpert, which I don't understand why they don't call themselves that, but that's fine. We needed a sexpert, but you know I am wary of all experts until I sat down with this book called Come As You Are. All right. Now listen to this, people. Here's what I read just in the introduction. All right. <laughs> oh, God. 
So many women come to my blog or to my class or to my public talks convinced that they are sexually broken. They feel dysfunctional, abnormal, and on top of that, they feel anxious, frustrated, and hopeless about the lack of information and support they've received from medical professionals, therapists, partners, families, and friends. Here's what I need you to know right now. The information in this book will show you that whatever you're experiencing in your sexuality, whether it's challenges with arousal, desire, orgasm, pain, no sexual sensation is the result of your sexual response mechanism functioning appropriately in an inappropriate world. You are normal. It's the world around you that's broken. I wrote this book to share the science stories and sex positive insights that prove to us that despite our culture's vested interest in making us feel broken, dysfunctional, unlovely, and unlovable, we are in fact fully capable of confident, joyful sex. Woo! She had me, well, she had me at come, but the title come as you are <laughs> is pretty damn good too. Our first guest sexpert, brilliant teacher, Emily Nagoski. Welcome to We Can Do Hard Things, Emily. I am delighted to be here. To be an act of service for your listeners is exactly what I want to do. Well, you've been untaming people around sex for a very long time. So before we get into the some really cool, you're going to talk to us about the five things that really get in the way of us having joyful, confident sex lives, as you would say. But before we start, can you just tell me, whenever I'm going to think hard about something, I just need to know, first of all, what is the point of thinking hard? Like, why sex, Emily? Why is it important that we have confident, joyful sex lives? What is in it for us? Why sex, Emily? On a certain level, it doesn't matter because it doesn't have to matter. No one's going to die if they don't have sex. Uh, and on another level, sex is part of being a mammal. You're not required to have it, but like it is built into the body that you were born into. Your body is the one and only thing you have with you on the day you're born that you still have with you on the day you die. And pleasure, Joni Blank from Good Vibrations said, Pleasure is your birthright. Mm. And on a third level, because we do live in a world that teaches us that our moral obligation is to be pretty, happy, calm, generous, and attentive above all to the needs of others, regardless of the sacrifice from ourselves required, to revel in our own sexual pleasure is an act of rebellion against that message. So it doesn't have to matter if you don't want it to matter, but it can be an act of revolution. Okay, I'm sold. Yeah. <laughs> Good podcast, everybody. Thank you you. know here. your audience, don't you, Emily? <laughs> no, that's what I say every time. <laughs> All right, I'm in. I'm in. Okay. Like, we no, just like agree perfectly about like uh, things. Why have we been taught all this bullshit? How do we go about unlearning all the bullshit? Unlearning. Okay, so let's go with that. Let's go with unlearning. What I loved about Come As You Are, so many things, but um, I loved how it was organized because the structure was helpful to me. Can you talk to us about your main ideas about the things that get in our way? Most of them are things we've learned or learned wrong, right? That are getting in our way of confident, joyful sex. So what are those things that we can knock out and have a chance at pleasure? One of the main ideas is that people's bodies are different and some of those bodies are better or worse. And I'm talking now about, let's just go right to genital shape and size. We live in a world where people are exposed, sometimes at a young age, to images of bodies that have been manipulated, even images of genitals that have been manipulated uh, some softcore porn will digitally make a vulva look like it's a little closed clamshell and they have no hair on them and there's no inner labia sticking out and they're all one color and that color is usually white. Mm -hmm. That And we learn from seeing those images that that's what a normal vulva looks like. And if our vulva doesn't look like that, there's something wrong with us. And then the medical industry invents surgery to make our vulvas look tucked in 
just like these photoshopped genitals. And what's actually true about genitals is every single package of genitals is made of the same parts. They're all just organized in different ways. And as long as they're not causing pain, they are healthy and beautiful precisely as they are. We can take that message that we are all made of the same parts. They're just organized in different ways and they're all great to every aspect of our sexual functioning. Like that. So genitals is chapter one. Dual control model is chapter two. Everybody has the same mechanism in their brain of an accelerator which notices all of the sex-related information in the environment. That's everything that you see, hear, smell, touch, taste, or crucially think, believe, or imagine that your brain codes as something related to sex, and it sends a turn-on signal many of us are familiar with. But at the same time, in parallel, you have breaks that are noticing all the good reasons not to be turned on right now. Everything that you see hear, smell, touch, taste, or crucially think, believe, or imagine that your brain codes as a potential threat. And it sends a simultaneous turn-off signal. So your level of arousal at any given moment is this balance of how much the ons are turned on and how much the offs are turned off. And our accelerators and brakes vary for one thing, in how sensitive those mechanisms are. Some people have quite sensitive accelerators uh, and some people have very not sensitive accelerators. It takes a whole lot of stimulation to get their accelerator going. Uh, some people have really sensitive brakes. So like the least thing, a stray fingernail, a stray noise, a stray thought can shut everything down. Some people have really not sensitive accelerators so or not sensitive brakes. So they're accelerator will continue working even in the face of a whole lot of good reasons not to. People vary tremendously and they vary in what activates their brakes and accelerators. There are common ones among things, especially that hit the brakes. So stress, depression, anxiety, loneliness, repressed rage. We've all got it. Uh, We've all got all of those, right, Emily? I just want to confirm. Yeah, <laughs> all of every those. single one. Okay, good. Just checking, asking for a friend. Yeah. <laughs> uh, there's also body image stuff. If uh, thinking about your body activates critical thoughts about your body, that's hitting the brakes. Trauma history. If sex has been used against you as a weapon, as it has for so many people, then something that is sex-related and activates the accelerator will also simultaneously activate the break. Mm -hmm. You weren't born with these connections made. It happened over the course of your life. You learned it and you can unlearn it by thinking carefully about it, by doing worksheets and writing prompts and uh, reducing your stress level overall and therapy. Therapy is your friend mm -hmm. when it comes to untangling these knots, especially sex therapy. They're specially trained in these issues. Um, so people vary. We're all made of the same parts, just organized in different ways. Because when a person is raised on the day they're born, everybody goes, it's a girl. Based on the shape of their genitals, they start teaching them specific manuals, the uh, messages, the, uh, there's a user's manual or a script, uh, that says, here's what you're supposed to do. And nowhere in there is like, enjoy erotic pleasure for yourself. how delicately you hold your baby, you dress your baby, and you feed your baby. We do that because they're adorable, of course, but also because their skin is delicate. Know this. There is only one diaper brand that we recommend to give you the gentle protective care your little one needs, and that's Pampers, the number one pediatrician recommended brand. Their Swaddler's diaper absorbs wetness better versus the leading value brand, and provides up to 100% leak-proof skin protection to keep your baby's skin dry, healthy, and beautiful. And when you use swaddlers in tandem with new Pampers Free and Gentle Wipes, you'll keep your baby's skin healthy. The wipes are made from 100% plant-based cloth, and you won't have to worry about tearing. With Free and Gentle, mess meets 
its match. That's right. So download the Pampers Club app today and earn Pampers cash. Redeem your Pampers cash for exclusive Pampers coupon savings and rewards. Tell us about responsive desire, like that whole, because we got the dual control model, but I'm not sure everybody knows about, say it again, the desire response Spontaneous versus responsive desire. Tell us about that. So the super efficient way to talk about it is that spontaneous desire emerges in anticipation of pleasure, where responsive desire emerges in response to pleasure. So spontaneous desire is the sort of standard narrative that you're just walking down the street and uh, you have a stray thought or you see a stray person, and that's enough for your brain to... Kaboom! Uh, Erica Moen, who is the cartoonist who illustrates Come As You Are, uh, draws it as a lightning bolt to the genitals. Kaboom! (laughs) You want it. And so you go to your partner, you're like, hey, partner, I have some kaboom. Do you want a kaboom? And that's spontaneous desire. And it's totally a normal, healthy way to experience desire. But then there is also responsive desire. Which is more like, it can can happen a variety of ways. One of them is you're like flipping through choices on Netflix you haven't picked yet. You're certain special someone sits next to you and like touches you and says nice things. And that stimulation goes up to your brain and it's some accelerator stimulation and your brain Mm -hmm. and your brain, your body's like, so this is happening. What do you, what do you think? And your brain says, well, that's really nice. And then some more things start happening and you might even like turn toward your partner and start kissing on them. And then your brain receives that input from your body and your body asks, so this is happening now. What do you think of that? And your brain goes, you know what? How about kaboom? (laughs) That's one of the ways it can happen. It's not spontaneous. It happens in response to an accumulation of pleasure. But very often, especially in long-term relationships, when we study couples who sustain a strong sexual connection over decades, how their responsive desire works is they set a time, Saturday at three o'clock, you me in the red underwear, let's do it. Uh, So you like, you arrange the babysitting and you finish the last load of laundry and you, you know, go into the bedroom and you close the door, you put on the red underwear, you put your body in the bed You let your skin touch your partner's skin and your body goes, oh, right. I really like this. Mm -hmm. I really like this person. And that's how responsive desire works in the best circumstances. And it is also a normal, healthy way to experience desire. In fact, it is more typical of people who sustain a strong sexual connection than it is among people who don't. I... That makes so much sense to me, babe. That's what we've been talking about. We have to have dates because it's like once we're there and we've begun, we're always like, this is never a bad idea. Like why? It's kind of like exercise. Yes. Yes. And, And I think it's like unromantic to think of it that way. So we don't want to talk about it that way. But that's how it works for us. It's like we have to like make it happen. And then we remember why it's such a good idea. But we're not walking around all day thinking, this is a good idea. We should do it. It's like the other way around. Exactly. It is not the people who can't wait to t- put their tongues in each other's mouths. I mean, if you do, great. Yeah, good for you. But that's not predictive of a strong sexual connection over the long term. Very interesting. Okay, this I, I need to ask you this one question because you said knowledge is an important knowing what mm-hmm. we don't know or what we've been taught wrong, like what you just told us about what every different labia looks like, like how we are all supposed to look like. Unlearning all of that is important, having the knowledge. But you also talk about joy, mm-hmm. that knowledge is the first step to have confidence, but you have to have joy, which is not only knowing what is true, but loving what is true. Can you say more about that, please? Because my favorite thing is this idea that everything that screws us up is this I- picture we have in our head of how it's supposed to be. Mm-hmm. Talk yes. to us about that and sex. When you talked about like everybody think about their definition of sex, not in terms of someone else, but in terms of like your own self, because the thing that gets the most in the way is this image you have of how it's supposed to be. I was literally like listening to the podcast. I was in the middle of like doing the dishes and I put everything down and I just went, yeah. <laughs> 
Because that's the thing. That's the problem. We are all fine, except insofar as we compare ourselves to what we think we are supposed to be mm-hmm. and judge ourselves against that comparison. And does judgment activate the accelerator? Mm. Or does self-criticism and judgment hit the brakes? Like the big irony is that one of the best ways to screw up your sex life is to compare your sex life and judge it as inferior to what it is supposed to be. So Mm. knowing that your body is already beautiful and spectacular and a glorious miracle is one thing. Knowing that responsive desire is not only normal, but like the kind of desire experience that is associated with a strong sex life that lasts for decades. Mm. Knowing that you have an accelerator and you have brakes. And when you are struggling, knowing that getting rid of the stuff that's hitting the brakes is more important than getting rid, than hitting more stuff Mm-hmm. that activates the accelerator. A lot mm-hmm. of like the mainstream pop culture sex advice is lingerie and sex toys and Ugh. lube and porn. And those things are great if you like them, go for it. But usually when people are struggling, it's not because there's too, not enough stimulation to the accelerator. It's because there's too much stimulation to the brakes. So knowing all of that, knowing what's true about your body, your sexuality, knowing what's true about your culture, knowing what's true about your relationship, is Mm -hmm. where confidence comes from. It's like, instead of giving me lingerie, sit down and figure out how half these damn meals are going to be made in the next week (laughs) for the family so that the break of the ticker can slow down and I can make out with you. Because the lingerie is really for you (laughs) also, not for me anyway. Just more presents for the partner, right? Some some people really love to put on lingerie for themselves. Oh, they do? People vary, yes. (laughs) Every time you're like, do they really? (laughs) It is so valuable because you're normalizing the people who feel the way you do and you're normalizing the people who feel a different way. Some people, they're just putting on a show for their partner. For some people, they look at their bodies in the laundry and they're like, damn. I can see that. I can totally see that. I was like, damn, I wore lingerie for like the first five months of our relationship, right, babe? And then yep. I just haven't put it on. I just see after the honeymoon was over, I just went back to sweatpants. Sweetie, the honeymoon's not over. Oh. Emily just said <laughs> the honeymoon is not over. Okay. All right. <laughs> so so knowing what's true is confidence and it's knowing what's true, even if it's not what you wish were true, even if it's not what everybody taught you is supposed to be true, even if it's not what you want to be mm. true. But then we get to joy, which is loving what's true about your body, loving your breaks, loving your genitals, loving everything about the size and shape and beauty and gloriousness of your body, loving your breaks, loving your responsive desire, letting go of the idea that spontaneous is better, which a lot of us are carrying around this idea that desire is supposed to be spontaneous and just boom, kaboom, hit us out of the blue welcoming the idea that responsive desire is a beautiful, wonderful thing. Loving what's true, even when it's not what you were taught should be true, even when it's not what you wish were true, even if it's not what everybody told you should be true. What makes joy the hard part is that getting to a place where you love all these things you have been taught to hate, Mm -hmm. taught to believe are the enemy, means abandoning hope that you will ever be that thing Mm. that everybody always taught you you are supposed to be. You got to let go. You got to grieve it. You have to have some rage about the fact that you were lied to for decades. And then you clear open the space for really exploring your actual sexuality that you have instead of the one you were always supposed to have. Whoa. Damn. That made me cry. I mean, Emily, I just, I spent a lifetime in women locker rooms looking at what I felt like was that ideal image of what a body should look like. You know, world champion at women athletes, right? And what you just said was just so, because, and I felt like because I was bigger and different looking. I just felt like there was something wrong with me all of my life. And when I was listening to your book, 
By the way, if you're not a reader, listen to Emily's book, Come As You Are. Her voice is perfect. You're so good at reading. Like, I, <laughs> I loved it. But I digress. And I just want to say, like, I came home and I had never internalized the idea that that maybe I thought that I was wrong, like that my body was was wrong and that my parts were not correct. And so saying all of this is like the beginning of like a healing for me. And I just want to say thank you so much. That's why I like started to cry just that now when you were saying like you have to abandon the hope of being that thing because so many of us struggle with the idea of not being the thing that the world approves of, right? And 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 doing that and abandoning that hope is going to save your life. And I don't know, you just gave me permission to do that. So thank you. You also gave her permission to come home from one of those walks and say, babe, let's look at our labia. <laughs> and I just, Emily, I'm just, it takes me a little longer to get um, on board with certain activities that books suggest. So we did postpone that activity. She goes, but- not, she goes not tonight, honey. Maybe, <laughs> maybe, maybe tomorrow. <laughs> Maybe tomorrow. <laughs> right. We can hope for tomorrow. Yeah. Emily, talk to Give us. yourself a long runway on yes. the things that are a Thank challenge. You. Thank you, Emily. And mm-hmm. don't beat yourself up for needing extra time because the best way to shut things down is to beat yourself up. Mm-hmm. Yes. Agreed. Ooh. With the 2024 games in Paris on the horizon. I've gotten nostalgic about my international career, and when I look back, there are a few things I would have done differently to make sure I made the most of my time abroad. And one of those things was to learn a non-English language more fully. A daunting task, yes, but a much easier one when you consider that Rosetta Stone can get you fast language acquisition through their intuitive research-based dynamic immersion approach. That's why they're the most trusted language learning program and have been for years with millions of users and 25 languages offered. Whether it's Dutch, Arabic, or Chinese, don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, We Can Do Hard Things listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com slash we can. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com slash we can today. Talk to us about our conditioning. Okay, because one of the the things that gets in our way and you talk about so beautifully is just the self-hatred, right? The the disgust we're we're taught Mm -hmm. to feel disgust about ourselves and about sex and we get it from the media and we get it from our religions. And how do we get deconditioned so we can be free from all of these nasty messages about being a woman and sex? I think one of the first things is recognizing that it's even there because a lot of us started being taught these disgust responses to our own bodies and the idea of sexuality long before we understood that's even what was happening. I got an email from a woman who read Come As You Are. She was watching her adult brother change his baby daughter's diaper, which is great. Uh, But so she's all clean and he reaches for the new diaper. And when he turns back, she is touching her vulva. And he goes, ah, don't touch that. And like, you got to wonder, how would he have reacted if his baby had had a penis instead? Mm-hmm. How would he have reacted if his baby had been touching her feet? Don't we love it when babies find their feet? Oh, did you find your pretty little toes? Did you find them? <laughs> what kind of world would it be if when our babies find their vulvas and clitorises, we went... Did you find your vulva? Did you find your clitoris? What a good girl. (laughs) So good. It's a totally different world, but this little girl is not going to remember that moment or any of the countless moments like it. They're just going to accumulate to associate anything with her genitals to disgust, shut down, being bad, scolded. And in her brain, there'll be a dark place where Mm -hmm. her genitals are supposed to be. 
and she doesn't have access to it. And she doesn't know why she finds it disgusting. Uh, I don't tell a lot of personal stories, but I have permission for this one. Um, when I was a kid, when I was like, uh, now I did not grow up in a super sex negative family. I just grew up in a regular America sex negative family. <laughs> um, and I guess I read the word vagina at the library because I was in the car driving home with my mom from the library. And I asked her, what's a vagina? And I do not remember what she said, but I do remember this huge flash of emotion that just like spontaneously emanated for this embarrassment, this panic, this uh, shame, probably. So when I got home, I looked up vagina in the medical encyclopedia in our house and the medical encyclopedia taught me what a vagina was. And my mom had all unknowingly taught me how to feel about a vagina. Mm -hmm. So seven years later, when I began training as a sex educator, 18, first semester in college, my first homework assignment was to go look at my own genitals. I got the little hand mirror and I was going to look and I had this flash of emotion mm -hmm. and I felt like I was going to confront the enemy. Wow. I had never explicitly been taught, uh -uh, don't touch that. There weren't. And a lot of people do have explicit messages that that's disgusting and dangerous and bad and no one's ever going to love you if you touch that. I didn't get that. I just got regular. So just regular sex negativity led me to feel like my body was an enemy and I was going to like march up and confront it. And uh, so I lay down on my bed and I got my little hand mirror. It was a mirror makeup compact. So there's like makeup on one side <laughs> and the mirror on the other. <laughs> like. I'm a college student and I look, it's the first time I've ever looked and I burst into tears Aww. because it was just part of me. It was like the backs of my knees or the soles of my feet, not something I see often, but like there and integral, literally just integrated into all of the rest of me. Mm. And I realized that I had been sending these judgmental messages to this part of my body. And that was not going to help it function more effectively. Mm. That was not going to help my genitals to be happy. That's right. So it was the reason I recommend it to all of my students is because I know for a fact that it can change people's relationship with their bodies. And that moment is actually the foundation for me. As much as I love the science, don't get me wrong. For me, everything goes back to that moment of when I don't know what's true, when I feel lost, when I wonder if I'm okay, my body already knows the answer. I don't have to look outward. I can just look in a mirror. I can look inside my own experience, just as everyone. I hope you love the science. I worked really hard on it, and I think it's very valuable. But ultimately, I and the science are not what knows what's true for you. You are who knows what's true for you. And if you get quiet enough and you look closely at what's actually happening inside your body and outside your body, you are the source of wisdom. Mm. I forget what the well, question was. Did that hugely, help? It was, it was a hell of an answer. It doesn't matter what the question was. Um, <laughs> That's hugely important and also utterly necessary because sometimes what we know is true in our bodies is actually the opposite of what we have been taught by science. Okay. So and like, on top of that, the patriarchy has taught us uh, to believe other people's opinions about our bodies right. more than we believe our bodies themselves. Mm. Exactly. I've recently read an article about Freud and how he put out the idea that the vaginal orgasm oh God. is the, the only proper way to have an orgasm. And so a, a while back, it was decreed that if you could not have a vaginal orgasm, you were frigid. So that's where the word frigid came from. Frigidity was not being able to have a vaginal orgasm. Women were sent to therapy. Women were sent to doctor's offices. They had... A, a surgery where they were moving people's clitorises closer to their vagina because they thought maybe that would help. So Emily, I mean, 
we have to go inside ourselves as a matter of survival because the actual science and experts are telling us that are labeling us wrong. Yes. Say things about that and tell yes. us how we can actually have a, an effing orgasm. So here's the thing about science. I love it. It's great. It's uh, it's the worst way of coming to know general facts about the world, except for all of the other ones. Science is really, really important. Oh, my gosh. The science is done by human beings. Uh, now, I, as a sex educator and my colleague sex educators and other sex therapists, are required to go through something called a SAR, a sexual attitude reassessment, which is an intensive weekend or week-long training where we are exposed to everything that could possibly activate our cultural learning of like what's not okay and give you the squick disgust reaction. Um, and my job as a professional is to make sure I let all of that go so that whatever person comes up to me and tells me their story, whatever they say, I'm fine. Like mm -hmm. I don't have, cause they have spent enough time in the world having people respond to their story with, they don't need that from me. They need me to be like, all right, Okay, do you? Mm -hmm. um, sex researchers are not required to do that. So they bring to their work the same lies mm -hmm. that all the rest of us were taught. It's getting better. It started getting better in the 70s and 80s when, guess what? More women became sex researchers. And they brought with them the assumption that uh, being a woman is not a disease. <laughs> we're not inherently broken and it it made sex research better my mm -hmm. vision for the future is that more trans and non-binary people and especially more people of color mm -hmm. will become sex researchers and it will be it'll be made better because more voices are being integrated into the scientific process but yeah uh science has been wrong a lot mm -hmm. across history um and, you know, it, it comes and goes. The full anatomy of the clitoris was in a mid-19th century anatomy textbook, and then it disappeared, and then it came back in another version, and then it disappeared again in 1957. Why? Wow. I didn't come know it, until, like, seven minutes ago that the clitoris is not just, like, it's, like, not just four inches long and, like, Three quarters of it is inside your body. It isn't right. just what's outside. It's actually the same length as the average non-erect penis. But we just like, it's all the inside stuff. So when you, that whole like G-spot thing, that's the internal part of the clitoris. No Yeah, way. one of the, so as you said in the last episode, only about a quarter of women are reliably orgasmic from vaginal stimulation alone. And when I use words like man and woman, I'm using the language from the research, mm -hmm. which is, almost exclusively cisgender people. That is another layer of problem mm -hmm. in the research. Um, it's also a whole lot of college students and something inherently built into the nature of sex research. It's only on people who are willing to participate mm -hmm. in sex research. And that is not a representative mm -hmm. sample of the population. <laughs> mm. I would think not. I would think not. <laughs> So there's all this stuff. So uh, one of the hypotheses for why anybody would have an orgasm from vaginal penetration alone, the technical term for it is unassisted intercourse, which is one of those science terms that I just love. Cracks me up. So unassisted. one of the hypotheses for why anybody would have an orgasm from an area that doesn't seem to have a lot of nerve endings to it, which the vagina itself does not, uh, is that penetration is actually stimulating those internal organs of the clitoris. I'm sure you can probably find like a, an image of this whole structure that you can put in the show notes or something. Um, but it looks like a wishbone basically uh, that straddles the urethra and the vaginal opening. And so some stimulation for some people with vaginas results in pressure against those legs of the clitoris. And that's why some people have orgasms from vaginal stimulation. Another hypothesis, the original G-spot hypothesis, is uh, so wrapped around the urethra is something called the urethral sponge. It is the uh, e equivalent of the prostate. Uh, 
The prostate has two jobs. It swells up in response to stimulation and thus closes off the urethra so you cannot pee when you're very aroused. And it produces about half the volume of the ejaculate, the seminal fluid. So around uh, a urethra right next to a vagina, when it swells up, it creates this like sensitive place that you can touch through the wall of the vagina. Mm-hmm. This is the classic come here motion mm-hmm. or some some of them like a tapa tapa. Some of them love a rub, like pressure rub. Some people find it very pleasurable if they're already turned on. Some people j- will only ever find it painful. For some people, it just makes them feel like they got to pee. People vary mm-hmm. tremendously. Nobody's right or wrong. People are just different. But Except for like, Freud. Freud why? was wrong. <laughs> I mean, no, but no one's experience of uh, sensation from vaginal stimulation. Freud was right. Freud was, I have a lot of things. I have a lot of feelings about Freud. I have a a theory. Do you, because it is unbelievable to me that we still, that that most of us somehow, because of what's in the culture, still think that we're supposed to have vaginal orgasms. Oh, everybody, yes. I get Even that question though every all the week. research shows us that most women can only yeah. have orgasm through the For clitoris. decades. Yeah. Right. Right. And even the way you say it can only have orgasm through. It's like as if it's like this like Jave, like there's something wrong with us. Like oh. we can only have like orgasms through this. No, this is the way women have orgasms. Yeah. That's the right. way I want it said. This is how most women enjoy and experience orgasm. Not only have it this good way. Job, not, this is a very good orgasm. Okay. Do you yes. think though, this is my question for Emily. Do you think that perhaps the reason why the patriarchy does not want that information disseminated is that if the truth comes out that vaginal intercourse does not, is not necessary for orgasm at all, that we need penises much less. That women, yep. women actually <laughs> can have orgasms from other women there by themselves. That more and more penises are becoming completely irrelevant if we <laughs> if this information is disseminated widely. <laughs> it's just something I've considered briefly. It's just her working hypothesis for the entire universe, Emily. That's all. <laughs> yes, no? Yes. Yeah. It's, I think it's a little a little different. I think it is okay. very convenient for people with penises who like putting their penises into vaginas. It is very convenient to have the narrative be, this is the ultimate source of pleasure for that person with a vagina. Mm-hmm. And to say, actually, no, that thing you love doing is just sort of an appetizer. It's just a fun ex- extra bonus activity. To the person with the vagina. And further convenient to classify it as this is what should work and will work. And Mm -hmm. if it doesn't work to give you an orgasm, you have a problem. You You are sexually non-functioning women. Right. Like, because I, over here, person with penis, am doing everything I'm supposed to do (laughs) to make it work. But you over there, person who might or might not have a clitoris because I haven't noticed are <laughs> not doing what you should are be supposed doing. to do. Yeah, why aren't the right. men taking more damn responsibility? Pod Squad, some of what we share with you on the show are our individual unique experiences in therapy and the takeaways that help us grow appreciate each other and navigate this beautiful life we're doing together. Thank you for doing it with us. But the things we talk about in therapy itself, these are things we wouldn't necessarily share with just anyone. I think there are a few things more important than finding the right person to share your deepest thoughts, feelings, and questions with, like a therapist. That's why we are thrilled about Alma's support of our show. They're big believers that you need the right someone to talk to, not just anyone. Alma helps you to find a therapist who gets you based on your needs, someone with whom you'll feel comfortable, heard, secure. Plus, and this shouldn't be overlooked, over 96% of therapists at Alma accept insurance because you want to pick someone based on the right fit, not just based on finances. 
You can browse their directory now. You don't even need to create an account. Visit helloalma.com slash hard things to schedule a free consultation today. That's helloalma.com slash hard things. I want to talk for a minute about trauma. How so many women's experience of sex is colored completely by trauma in their lives. Severe trauma, like over just being part of a patriarchy trauma, but abuse. How do women even begin to do what you, you know, to have confident, joyful sex lives when, when they've been traumatized? Step one therapy. Mm -hmm. Because these are, these are big, the roots of the patriarchy go deep. And to dig deep enough into your soul to uproot that stuff takes help. And because most of us are not trained in how to be with a survivor while they grieve and while they work through the rage of having this damage inflicted on them and seeing how deep the scars go. Most of us are not trained in how to do that. So a therapist is a person who can be with a client while that happens. Mm -hmm. um, I often describe therapy as going into the woods with someone and standing quietly and calmly no matter what happens in the woods because nothing that happens in there is dangerous. I, as an educator, am like, here's a toolkit. Here's how to use all the tools. Here's a map of what you're going to find in the forest. Go for it. You can do it. I don't go in with them. That is the thing that I can't do. Therapists, when trauma is involved, therapy. People can make lots of progress on their own, too. And there are lots of different modalities for making progress. Come as you are, workbook has all these like worksheets that you think through what you were taught. And if sex was used as a weapon against you, what that means and how you can transform that narrative into a source of power. But the main, I would say, like, if there's one thing that all of us listening to this can do is to recognize that all of us need help. None of us are doing our sexuality wrong. And all of us need help embracing the sexual selves that we are. So when you say that you hate giving blowjobs, you are allowed to hate giving blowjobs. And if I love giving blowjobs, I'm allowed to love giving blowjobs. And we're both right. And we both belong. And we're both welcome. And I want that to be true for everyone, regardless of what has happened to them in the past. That when we hear other people's stories about sexuality, our response is never, ugh. It's always, okay, that's, that's what happened. And if there is, if there's a skill people can develop, it's learning how to listen when people disclose stories of trauma. Tell us, tell us how. Here are the four steps. When someone discloses trauma to you, when you're talking to a survivor and they're experiencing distress, pain, there are four sentences. They are difficult, but these are the ones that work. Are you ready? Yes. One, I believe you. Two, thank you for trusting me enough to tell me. Three, I am sorry that that happened to you. And four, I support you whatever you choose to do. And I also want to ask, what do people do who can't afford to get to therapy? Who've been through trauma. Yeah. This is when we're going to rely on our friends and family, making sure that they can be here. The safe people, there are probably only going to be a couple of people who are safe enough. Mm -hmm. And there is value. It is not inherently dangerous to feel those big, uncomfortable feelings alone. 
there can be an important psychological growth that happens when people are traumatized and they allow themselves to wrestle with those difficult feelings by themselves. Uh, some people are taught that uncomfortable feelings are dangerous. Uncomfortable feelings are never dangerous. Feelings, as I say, literally every day of my life are tunnels. You have to go all the way through the darkness to get to the light at the end. So you can be in your bed and allow yourself to grieve and mourn and rage. And it'll last ooh, 10 minutes, 15 minutes. And your body will have done all the grieving, raging, raging and mourning that it can do for the present. And learning to tolerate the sort of purging of those uncomfortable feelings is a very powerful skill. It's just so interesting because it's like, it's like when we talk about this whole thing, I think sex is so, it's like the dragon at the center of our entire lives because it has this aspect of it that's like, yes, it's our bodies and yes, pleasure is our birthright. And yes, we experience pleasure through it and um, loving what is. But it's like what you said about the very same, the very same activation of our brains that tells us that this is sexual and that this is the route to our own pleasure and our own birthright is the very same part of our brain that activates every bit of trauma and violence that has been against our bodies and against our birthright all at the same moment. Like that, and you begin to understand how survivors through the chronic degradation of our bodies and our pleasure and our mm -hmm. worthiness over a lifetime, or whether it's a specific violent event, it's like how inextricable that all is for someone who is trying to get through their birthright through the same route that they experienced the attempted, you know, removal of, removal of their birthright. You right. know, it's almost mm -hmm. like, God. I used to feel so much anger during sex. I would say that anger was the emotion I felt most used, rageful. Mm -hmm. And then I would feel like a complete crazy person for feeling, I wasn't supposed to feel angry during sex, but I would just seethe, inner seethe the whole time. I felt like I could be anybody and I'm just being used and I'm just like, a he's a cat scratching a, a post, mm -hmm. but I have to get through it because I have to. So, and I think that's all tied together. Like all of my, all of the political, all of the world feelings about sex, I felt in the most personal moments. And do you think it's because, cause when you, when, when I first read about like breaks and accelerators, when you were talking about that, I'm like, yeah, yes, that is totally true. And also that assumes we're listening to our breaks, like in how many worlds and how mm -hmm. many moments and how many nights are you like breaks say, hell no. Okay. But your prefrontal you, cortex takes over and is like, no, you have to. Yes. Right. And is that that where is, anger comes I, that from? is the classic recipe for pain with sex. Mm. Literal physical pain with sex. Mm. Uh. So we don't even feel the right to honor our breaks. And that is how we feel in most realms, not just right. sex. But like because we, your pleasure is not what matters. What you want is not what matters. It's what the men in your life need that matters. And so we are expected to sacrifice everything that we have, our time, attention, our bodies, our hopes and dreams, sometimes our lives, all sacrificed on the altar of someone else's comfort and convenience. Mm -hmm. I have a question because I'm sure a lot of our listeners are in cisgender, heteronormative marriages. If you find yourself in a marriage, like I would say, Glennon, you were in, in terms of and being ragey and, and all of these breaks were there, but your prefrontal cortex, like what are some strategies that you would recommend to these women to help in that circumstance, to help free them of 
A, experiencing the pain and anger and trauma inside of these experiences, and then B, including their their partners to to mm-hmm. change the outcomes. Yeah. How long do we have? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, just give us a couple ideas. Okay. One of the reasons it's so hard for people to talk about sex is because of a lack of basic vocabulary. Not even knowing that there are sexual truths outside of the ones that they were taught. Literally everything you were taught up to the age of approximately 18 was both factually incorrect and just morally wrong. (laughs) And you need, you can't bust a myth until you have something to replace it with. Mm. Like you'll just keep going back to the myth unless you have something like a wall to get in the way of you and that thing that is trying to hurt you. And the truth, the science is my wall. It's what fills up the space where the myth used to be. And that's the dual control model. But some of it isn't science. Some of it is uh, the radical moral claim that every human has a right to bodily self-sovereignty. So I'm working on this new book. Oh, good. (laughs) And it's a, I have a chapter about the patriarchy because how could I not? Mm -hmm. Um, And I, I talk about, like I had a big reaction when you mentioned Freud because, oh boy, Freud. Um, do you know about the thing where he said that, uh, in all my years of studying the feminine soul, the question I still cannot answer is what does a woman want? Yes. Oh. Yes. Right. Yes. And also that we didn't need to pay attention to the big questions of life. That's my favorite that we could oh. only, we, we didn't even need to enter into those conversations. We just needed to settle into a lesser existence and right. basically do the damn dishes. Women yeah. oppose change, receive passively, and add nothing of their own. Yes. Yes, that's my fave. He said that oh, in 1925. Oh, so about that. What else was happening on this continent Voting. in particular right around 1925? Voting. Voting yep. and labor rights. Labor yep. rights. And you yes. know what the marching protest was in voting and labor rights in the early part of the 20th century? We want bread and roses too. Give us bread and roses too. This means not just that we want decent working conditions and fair pay. It means that we want liberty over our own lives. Mm -hmm. We want to, we want pleasure. We want beauty, the delights of life. We want Mm -hmm. music and time. And here's the complicated thing about life's delights. They require time and peace of mind and a community that will hold our stuff for us so that we can step away for just just a couple of minutes yes. and stand in life's sunshine. Mm-hmm. To get access to the roses, we need support mm-hmm. to protect us from all the demands. We want bread and roses too. This, women's sexuality, bread and roses, are self-sovereignty bodily self-sovereignty, which really doesn't seem like it's too much to ask, right? And we want the roses. We want life's delights. Mm -hmm. And like every human on earth wants those things, right? Mm -hmm. It's just the expectations around women are different than they are for men. Like if men want to have great sex with us, if anybody wants to have great sex with us, we would like to have great sex Two. So mm-hmm. the question mm-hmm. is not and never has been, what do women want? It is, how can I help her get free? And how can I help her access life's delights? Oh, God. I feel like with the roses two part, it's just this, like when you say you deserve pleasure. It's like what someone like me hears is like, you should want sex. Right. Mm. But, but what I want to say is that like, no, you deserve to have your life be set up in such a way that you are able to access your desire to have sex. Yes. Damn it. Because it takes it from the, the 
duty that mm-hmm. like something's wrong with me that I'm a not having pleasure in this or that I be don't um I feel resentful of this or I don't have the bandwidth for it or whatever and puts it in a place of like no you know what I do deserve I deserve to have that my life organized in such a way that I am not nonstop breaks, that 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 the communal aspect of my family is set up so that I don't have to be 100% breaks, so that we have responsibilities shared, so that I can have access to the part of my life that can desire that pleasure and access that pleasure as opposed to being the one that is in the position of feeling like I am a failure because I'm not meeting my duty to respond to your ability to access the part of your life that gets to desire and have pleasure. Bam! I'm looking at my sister and I know that in my head I am already planning a sign for her wall that says, I want bread and roses too, because I know what that has meant to you, sister. Emily, I thank you for the work that you are doing for all of us out in the world. I know everyone that's listening right now is wishing that we had more time with you. So I want to tell you that we do. Woo! Emily's going to, on th- the, the, the next episode is going to be Emily answering all of your questions. Okay. Emily is an actual sex queen. Okay. Not a silent <laughs> one. So next episode. I mean, my husband thinks so. Oh, <laughs> We need to talk about the silence part. Okay, not, can we? I'm not going to not talk about the silence part. Okay, well, we'll talk. We'll start by ta- uh, with the episode by talking about the silent part. Emily, give us one quick thing that everyone can do this week to demand their roses. Is it looking at their labia? Is it ordering? Well, they're all going to order come as you are. But what other thing can people do that's easy and simple to to claim their sexual joy? Step number one for the roses is noticing the pleasure that exists now, mm-hmm. which will teach you, oh, I already have the ability to experience pleasure and enjoy it if I slow down enough to notice it. Mm-hmm. So it'll be food. It'll be friends. It'll be touch. It'll be your kids. Whatever brings you the spark and makes you feel alive, that will be your light that guides you toward erotic ecstasy. Okay, y'all. Next right thing. Notice the spark. She is going to be back to answer all of your actually really fascinating, wonderful questions on Thursday. So come back for that for now. If the next two days get extra stressful, don't worry because we can do hard things. We'll see you back here soon. I give you Tish Melton and Brandy Carlisle. I walked through fire, I came out the other side I chased desire, I made sure I got what's mine And I continued to
We Can Do Hard Things is produced in partnership with Cadence 13 Studios. Be sure to rate, review, and follow the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Odyssey, or wherever you get your podcasts. Especially be sure to rate and review the podcast if you really liked it. If you didn't, don't worry about it. It's fine. 